Hi, welcome to Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. I'm Chris. I'm Charlotte. We are the Pleasure Mechanics, and on this podcast, we feed your heart and soul and mind with sexual knowledge, <laughs> give you great sex advice, and keep you company in the darkest of nights. Ooh. <laughs> we are back. Thank you guys so much. It is May 2018. Uh, last month was hard. And we are emerging out of it stronger than ever, I think. You guys showed up for us in a big way. After we asked for help last month, we got lots of new people on our Patreon. Uh, lots of people enrolling in courses, signing up for the Erotic Essentials. So we have your email addresses. We feel surrounded and buoyed by our community. Community. <laughs> buoyed by our community. <laughs> And, and we got amazing emails, like so many thanks for your emails that told us that we are important in your lives, that you love listening, that it's made a meaningful change for you. That's really the bottom line for us. We want to know that you are out there listening and supporting what we do so we can keep doing it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was really beautiful to hear your words, to feel your support, to feel like we are in communion. Someone sent us pecans, someone offered us legal help, someone offered us business coaching. A lot of people just offered their thanks and love and cheers and here we are. So May is masturbation month. Oh, before before mm. May starts. Um on our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash pleasure mechanics, you can sign up to offer a monthly pledge, $1, $5, $10 a month. It all adds up and really helps us keep going. And at the $25 a month level, we are sending you pleasure packages. And just last night, we ordered our first batch of stickers pleasure mechanic stickers and I'm gathering up some of Charlotte's beautiful erotic art and we are gathering up um, samples and toys we have sent to us from our friends in the sex industry and we are putting together some care packages for our patrons at the $25 a month level if you would like to get one please come over to patreon.com slash pleasure mechanics and sign up yeah, before we send them out yeah I feel like I'm making care packages for campers or something. It's so fun. <laughs> All right. So May is Masturbation Month. And it's been Masturbation Month since the mid-90s when Good Vibrations, the feminist sex toy store, declared it Masturbation Month. And I wanted to do an episode... There is a wild turkey that just walked by outside. <laughs> I just turned my head because Charlotte was staring outside. There's wild turkeys in our backyard. All right. I love... They're actually my power animal, so... <laughs> Hey, um, I wanted to do an episode. Oh, gosh, I'm excited. Well, you want you could tell your masturbation turkey story if you wanted. <laughs> oh gosh, that's another episode. Oh, not not actual me. turkey. Sorry. Stop, stop. Sorry. Stop. Um, we wanted to do an episode about masturbation. I was thinking about how I wanted to approach this, and I started thinking about the history of masturbation and how we are at this point in 2018 where i still on the daily almost every day get emails from people worried about masturbating how frequently they're masturbating is masturbation cheating on their partner is masturbating a sin is it going to ruin me sexually i get these emails every day so how in 2018 are we still culturally at the point where we are deeply ashamed and worried about something as 
natural as touching your own genitals. It's like blowing your nose, scratching an itch, touching your genitals for sexual relief and pleasure and a form of self-love seems to me as natural as eating, breathing, moving our bodies. It's part of the human design. But how did we get here? And so I started looking back. And while Charlotte was just out in a car ride dropping off our daughter at her grandmother's house for childcare, I just lightning stormed <laughs> uh, three, four thousand year history of masturbation. <laughs> and I want you to tell you the story of how masturbation um, has been dealt with and talked about and legislated around for the past three or 4,000 years and how it has everything to do with how you lie down in bed with your own genitals at night and how you masturbate. It influences all of us in one way or another, okay? So this is a lightning round. There are big, amazing books written about every phase of this history, so I'm not going to be able to do it full justice, but I want to tell you a little story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I think it is such an amazing example of how sex has been used as a form of social control and taken away from us on purpose by people in rooms with pens. Because sometimes I think people are like, what, did men sit, sit around and make laws that made sex bad and taboo? Yeah, they did. And here's the story. Okay. And it affects you in private, alone, solo. How much I mean, pleasure so you trippy. can feel. Yeah. What you allow yourself, how much pleasure you bring yourself, your body has everything to do with the story. Okay. Ready? So, animals masturbate. Animals in many different species masturbate. It is just part of what animal bodies do. And humans are animals. Humans have always been masturbating. All ancient art, from cave paintings to tablet etchings, they all reflect male and female masturbation. In every culture around the world, masturbation is depicted in the most ancient artifacts of humanity we can find. We have found sex toys made out of bones and leather. We have found beautiful imagery of lots of masturbation throughout history. Okay, so that's where we're coming from. Humans have always masturbated. Ancient Sumerians believe, this is one of the first documented human cultures, ancient Sumerians believed masturbation was good and healthy and it increased sexual potency and fertility and it was celebrated. They had special oils and tools dedicated for it. The ancient Greeks, when you start getting into that kind of 400 BC era of ancient Greeks, they thought it was a healthy form of sex for the most part, but they started talking about and creating rules and philosophies around who should masturbate and how we should masturbate. And if you know Greek philosophy, they did a lot of these just long conversations where they debated ideas and created kind of a culture of ideas. So it wasn't so much legislated as it started to be um, cultural, kind of judged, culturally judged. Um, we get to the rise of Christianity. And so in the Old Testament, in the Judaic Old Testament, there is a story of Onan. This is going to become very important in a few hundred years, a few thousand years, actually. So Onan, um, the story of Onan is that he was ordered by God to have sex with his deceased brother's wife in order to procreate. 
And if they, their union was, and this was a form of marriage called Levirate, Levirate, the Levi nation, right? Um, a type of marriage in which a brother of a deceased man is obligated to fertilize his wife in order to create offspring for that dead guy. So Onan was told to have sex with Tamar. And if Tamar had a baby, Onan would lose his inheritance. And so what did Onan do? He withdrew before ejaculation and spilled his seed on the ground so that she would not conceive and he would get his inheritance. So this is an inheritance dispute, right? This is a clan war. And it finds its way into the Old Testament. And then, by the way, the next day Onan is struck down by God and killed. Okay, so this is one of the earliest, earliest examples of capital punishment, of being killed for your misdeeds. And the interpretation of this Bible story becomes very important for sex culture for the next 2000 years, bringing us to present day. Um, in ancient Judaic interpretations, the sin was disobeying God. Mm. And the sin was greed for yourself versus what's best for your clan. Mm and refusing to procreate out of selfishness, right? So in their culture, what they're focused on is the unity of their clan, the survival of the tribe, procreation, and keeping inheritances clean. And this is the role of procreation, right? And so by withdrawing and ejaculating on the ground, spilling his seed, the crime of Onan is invented. Okay, so Jesus coming around the zero year mark, as it turned out, um, is said he has nothing to say about sexuality. He said very little about actual sex. He said a lot about love. Mm. So in early Christian years, Christianity is a small cult sect trying to survive after the death of their prophet. These are hermits and aesthetics monks who are living in isolation, clinging to their faith, and trying to have a relationship with a new faith, a new god, a new prophet. And they thought of sex and spirit as divided because their struggle was a physical one. They felt like they had to physically endure in order to have their spirits received by God. And so the war between the body and the spirit starts here. And there were early aesthetic sets of all different kinds around the region. Christianity was just one of them, of hermits who would go out into the desert and go into trance states. You know, we can imagine this kind of spirituality living amongst desert tribal nations, okay? Mm. This survives for a couple hundred years, and their early writings are full of this war between the body and spirit and survival, Fourth century AD is when the spread of Christianity begins, right? Christianity is taken up by the Roman government in 313 AD. And it is now a tool of government. It is a tool of colonialism, of spreading, of spreading a nation, of imperialism. And these early apostles, so Apostle Paul is one we have a lot of writings from. And he really believed Jesus was coming back any moment now. And we should purify ourselves and be celibate. So this is the early church control of marriage and the dialogue around celibacy and purity and waiting for spiritual redemption in a state of celibacy. And his student, St. Jerome, and St. Jerome's student, Augustine of Hippo, would set the stage for sex law for the next several thousand years. 
They were the guys, when we talk about the guys in rooms with pens, these were the guys who were struggling with sex versus spirit. Sex as the original sin began here. This idea that Adam and Eve fell from grace and were expelled from the Garden of Eden for sexual sin, and therefore we are all paying the price. That idea is rooted here in the fourth century after Christ, as Christianity is starting to take hold. Right? Okay. So Augustine says, the insubordination of genitals and their defiance of the will is clear testimony of the punishment of man's first sin. So this idea that our genitals want something, our sexuality wants something, and our spiritual mission is to quash that, deny it, control it, and... Therefore, we are pure. Augustine, meanwhile, had a 15-year relationship with a concubine, was married to an 11-year-old girl, and while he was waiting for her to become fertile, took on several lovers. So his famous quote is, Grant me chastity and continence, God, but not yet. He was someone who struggled with sexuality, right? He was someone who felt big sexual urges and created all of this doctrine about chastity, but not yet. Okay. And in this period, sexual lust is started to be cast as the devil's work. Teachings and writings start to emerge about the devil appearing to you with sexual temptation to pull you away from God. It is a temptation for sin. And all of the longings, the lust, the desires urging of your genitals is Satan's work. Okay, does any of this feel familiar, right? So we are back in fifth century, you know, so we're 1500 years ago, and this is feeling pretty familiar already. Okay. Um, so one of the early popes, Pope Gregory the Great said, marital intercourse is blameless as long as there is no pleasure. Mm. So we see this idea of sex is okay only within marriage, only for procreative intercourse, as long as there is no pleasure. Okay. So what does that do? Why is that important in that this is about just you're still focused on God and you're not having any... Okay, so what was happening now is they are bringing Christianity to masses of European peasants, mm -hmm. pagans, who have their own cultures, who have their own rights, who have their own gods in some cases. And what the Christian empire is trying to do is establish control across big geographic areas. How do you establish social control? This is this idea of sex as social control. How do you establish your culture in a region that already has its own culture, imperialism, colonialism, one of the ways you do that is by turning people against themselves. Mm. And when we tell people that their sexual lust is sin, their sexual lust will lead them away from God and is punishable, we start gaining control over the culture. Over their internal... Yes. Ex experience of themselves and they begin to control themselves right 
And when we come in with an army and say, this is the way it's going to be, these are the new rules. And one of those rules is that sex is a sin. You can only have it within marriage, only to procreate. So you create more soldiers for us, ultimately. Um, we create those social laws that create a deep internal conflict. We can start also turning people against one another. Mm -hmm. And this is how they did it. So they created the priest as confessional, mm. right? We have a church. The church is where you get alms, or you get money. It's the center of the town. It's the center of the political, right? So church and state were very much inseparable at this point. The priest is the confessor, and you must come and confess your sins. And not only confess your sins, but the priest is in charge of drawing out your sins. So there were books that the church created these documents called penitentials. And penitentials were catalogs of sexual sins and the appropriate penance. And they were literally like catalogs, like, oh, you had sex with your wife, not on a fertile day, one day of penance. Oh, you had sex with a neighbor's wife. This is the punishment. Some of those punishments were financial, so you had to pay a certain amount to the church to clear your sins. <laughs> Others were social. And again, because of the connection between church and state, certain sexual confessions could lead you to punishment. So financial fines, um, jail time, public humiliation and torture, or death. Right. And so we create this system of the confessional and the drawing out of confession. So there are lists of questions to ask your parishioners like, have you ever coupled with your wife from behind like a dog? This is the invention of the have you ever game. Right. <laughs> have you ever had lustful thoughts not about your wife? this drawing out of sexual sin, naming certain acts as sexual sin with appropriate punishment. This is how we create what's right and what's wrong, what is condoned and what is condemned, what is permissible and what is not permissible. And so masturbation during this time in the penitentials um, was considered as big of a sin as sodomy, as having sex outside of wedlock, um, the idea of masturbating, taking sexual pleasure of any kind, even in your thoughts, even in your sleep, was punishable. So we get generations of people, because it doesn't take long for you to believe what the soldiers with weapons say and what your survival depends on, right? Like that belief can take place within a generation. And so we now have generations of people believing that their survival depends on the repression of their sexual pleasure solo, partnered, in and out of marriage, awake and asleep. In thoughts and in deed. Yes. It's heavy stuff. This is really, it's so upsetting. It's so... But for me, it's like revelatory, right? Because I get these emails from people suffering these very personal struggles where they feel so ashamed of what their experience is, and we map it into this history, and we see how this is deliberate and on purpose. And generational. And changeable, therefore, yeah. mm -hmm. right? Okay, so we're going to zoom forward. So 1700s, it's the rise of printed literature. It's the rise of the professional classes. And we get the first big book called Onania. 
Does that name sound familiar? Onan, Onania, or the heinous sin of self-pollution and all of its frightful consequences in both sexes. It's the name of this book. It was <laughs> the, best, off the tongue. best-selling book of the year. Wow. New York Times bestseller of 1712, the heinous sin of self-pollution <laughs> and all of its frightful consequences in both sexes. <laughs> so what we see here is the power was starting to shift away from the church into the professional classes doctors, scientists, philosophers who are starting to create a new culture of how we understand and organize ourselves as humans. But they basically just take their playbook from the church and rewrite it as scientific literature. Mm -hmm. So now instead of masturbation being a sin, it is the cause of all diseases. And these books, so I did a big paper about this in college, and I just loved poring over these first-hand texts because they were like these amazing old crinkly books in the antique section, but they're talking about masturbation will give you seizures and... Um, sleeplessness and cankers of the toes and nose hair and literally anything that could go wrong with the human body was attributed back to masturbation. How convenient for a new class of doctors. Um, and then meanwhile, in the philosophy field, we have Kant and Rousseau calling masturbation weak and it's leading to society's downfall. So masturbation has been like the kicking horse, the scapegoat of society for such a long time. And during this, this, so this was the Victorian era, the rise of the medical profession, this is when we get the proliferation of anti-masturbation devices. And the patent system is invented in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and we start getting all of these patents um, for anti-masturbation devices. So these were cock rings lined with spikes, and so if the penis got at all erect, the spikes would pierce the penis and remind you of your sin or elaborate devices where if a boy got erect at night it pulled a rope and dumped cold water on the boy or cauterization of the clitoris with acid and as a last resort complete excision of the genitals routine medical for persistent masturbation right so this is how the medical industry took over the social control of sexuality from the church They've been really good bedfellows ever since. And these were marketed as products to like parents, concerned parents in young America. How do we keep our children straight and pure and not let them fall to the sin of masturbation? We have all of these devices to help you. Meanwhile, the medical... That wild turkey's still hanging out in our backyard. <laughs> Meanwhile, the medical profession is inventing the vibrator for treating hysteria in women. And this is this whole parallel conversation that's going on. So the medical industry is demonizing masturbation and inventing all of these tools to prevent it. And they're inventing the vibrator to treat hysteria. And the first vibrators were these big huge machines and women would pay to go to the doctor's office and have these vibrators applied to their genitals for the release of the hysteria. It's so dull. Also, okay. by the way, this is when routine circumcision of boys takes place in the United States. So away from the Jewish tradition, this is when circumcision of boys becomes a medical procedure and built into that literature is circumcision of boys as an anti-masturbation device. So how do we prevent masturbation? Let's take away some of the most sensitive skin from the get-go. Okay? Moving on. 
Also, by the way, on the web page at pleasuremechanics.com for this episode, I will link and create some photo galleries of some of these devices. Because in some ways, seeing is believing, right? You can hear me tell this story, but when we start seeing the artifacts of this sex law, like in print, it becomes very startling to realize what was actually codified and when and why. And there's so many conversations like this about like sex and race law and sex and immigration. And sex has always been used as a form of social control in all of these different ways. And as they say now, we have the receipts. We have the first person documents to lay out this history in a very clear way. So fun little aside and part of this story is the invention of cornflakes and graham crackers. <laughs> Why? Two of the loudest anti-masturbation crusaders were John Harvey Kellogg and Sylvester Graham. So both around the 1830s, they're in young America, they're trying to establish like health and wellness brands and sanatoriums to create like pure and ethical society based on Christian values. That's what these guys were all about. Anti-masturbation was one of their biggest platforms. And Kellogg invented granola and cornflakes because he believed that like pure eating and the crunchiness of these products, like the tension you release through crunching through your breakfast rather than eating a soft bowl of oatmeal would help relief the, release the tension that would prevent masturbation. So we have the invention of breakfast cereal tied into this story. And graham crackers, which every time I give my daughter a graham cracker now, I kind of have a chuckle. Um, so part of the rise of the professions was the rise of a new profession, sexology. 1897 was the publication of one of what's considered the first books about the science of sexuality. And that was Havelock Ellis, Studies in the Psychology of Sex. And he started questioning these principles. He started questioning the idea that masturbation caused disease and used his scientific knowledge to start disproving some of these theories. Masturbation doesn't cause this. Here's what does. Um, so Havelock Ellis still, by today's standards, very conservative, right? He wrote about homosexuals as inversion and all these things, but this idea that we can start scientifically studying sex itself and not take a cue from religion to start understanding it was born right around here. So 1897, turn of the century. 1922, we have a philosopher, Wilhelm Reich, who starts talking about sexual energy as something that needs to be channeled. And he developed this idea and built these elaborate orgone boxes that were like padded with cotton and you would get in the box and masturbate to like recirculate that erotic energy back into you. And he was way ahead of his time in many ways. His books have been burned. He was arrested for shipping these boxes across state lines. So again, they take down the sex radical, um, they criminalize his ideas and silence it for another generation. And a lot of his ideas are now being re-celebrated. Does anyone hear that turkey in the back here? Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's awesome. He's fanning his big feathers. It's amazing. <laughs> um, so 1920, it's, you know, and then we're getting into the world wars. All of that is happening in culture. And 1940s, we have Alfred Kinsey and his major publications on male and female sexuality. And he took the stance of like, let's forget what everyone is saying. Let's talk to what people are doing. And he did these massive 
for his time surveys of human sexual behavior and reported, look, everyone's masturbating, is what he revealed, along with so many other things like people have gay desires. Um, And Kinsey was one of the first contributors of the science of statistics and saying everyone's doing this. Not everyone is getting hairy palms and seizures. Like, clearly there's a gap in the science here. And his books were so popular just as, like, trade paperbacks. Um, It kind of started setting the stage for a transformation of culture of acceptance of masturbation. People started seeing that, oh, I'm not the only one struggling with this. Other people are doing the same things I want to do. And the Kinsey reports very much created that culture of... um, I want to call it like the let's get real culture of starting to look at sexuality beyond the idea of sin and disease. 1968, masturbation is removed from the DSM as a diagnosable psychiatric condition. The DSM is the book that psychologists use for diagnosis. So 1968 is the first time we say publicly, well, maybe it's not going to cause you madness and seizures. Um, okay. So we're almost at modern time, right? So when were your parents born? Where were you? When were you born? Right? So we're 1968, you know, so we get into the hippie movement, free love, anti-war, civil rights. In the 1980s, the godfather of queer theory, Michel Foucault, um, put forth the idea that master, the masturbation taboo was the violence, And queer theory, it's a topic of a whole nother podcast, but we start having the transformation of ideas that the violence around sexuality is not the sexuality itself, it is the control of the sexuality. It is the enforcement of the confessional. It is the pathologizing of what is natural as a form of social control. Many of these ideas are born out of Michel Foucault and other postmodern theorists. And in the 1980s, 1990s, leading into the AIDS crisis, we start having this idea that how we talk about sex matters and and it matters as a form of power right? Sex is power. And this will then inform the next wave of the sex positive movement, which begins with the AIDS crisis. Okay, so 1980s, the discovery of AIDS and HIV. And the rates at which people were dying, I think, is sometimes forgotten. And we had an AIDS crisis on our hands. The government was not reacting very well to this. They were not putting immediate funding into it, especially because of the community it came out of. It was called gay cancer. On national news, it was said it was come to, like, purge the world of homosexuals and we should let it run its course. Meanwhile, heterosexuals are getting sick. And the public health response that was mounted by gays and lesbians in the 1990s is now considered one of the most successful public health campaigns in the world. And how they, um, with very little resources, um, started mobilizing a campaign of safe sex. And the safe sex campaign, and this is what I was born into. I was born in 1980. So as I was coming into my sexuality as a very young teenager, this was my framework with safe sex and AIDS walks and condoms. And this national campaign started centering masturbation as a safe sex act, right? So within the context of a virus that was spread by sex that was deadly at the time and horrific in its consequences, 
there were public messages starting to say, but masturbation is safe. Either on your own or with a partner lying next to you, touching yourself cannot give you this virus. And that message was really one of the first times that masturbation was actually like celebrated or given props um, or considered healthy. And it's interesting to think about if AIDS hadn't hit, where would sex culture be now? We often don't think about the ways that AIDS made the public health campaigns of safe sex and talking about condoms and having to name specific sex acts, like in literature, starting to talk about anal sex and sex with your hands and oral sex. Um, this was all new and it was required to happen because of this virus. Um, and the response to AIDS has continued to inform the sex positive movement to this day. And so we're in the 1990s, 1994, Surgeon General Jocelyn Elders was forced to resign after saying that masturbation was normal and healthy and perhaps should be taught in sex education curriculum. Um, that again was a national scandal that brought this conversation to the surface. And in 1995, the San Francisco-based feminist sex toy store Good Vibrations declared May to be Masturbation Month. Um, they did big campaigns around it, sold a lot of vibrators, created something called the Masturbatathon as a big fundraiser where people would get together in a room and masturbate together for as long as they could. And from that kind of focus of feminist sex toy stores and the sex positive education that was birthing out of these stores, and we actually have a whole podcast on that, I'll link to it on the show notes page. Um, that's where we get this generation of sex education, pleasure positive education, sex positive culture, um, that is very much our lineage, right? If it wasn't for good vibrations, pleasure mechanics certainly wouldn't be here. Um, but a generation of was born that not only was comfortable talking about sex and safe sex and educating about sex acts and condom use and multiple partners and high-risk activities, um, but we started talking about sex as pleasure and sex as something that's beyond sin and disease and punishment. And procreation. And here we are. So 2018, we have about 30 years of this sex positive movement behind us, and it is very much connected to the rest of this history. Um, but people still struggle with this idea of masturbation and the value of masturbation, the morality of masturbation. What does masturbation mean? And we cannot forget this history because this is the history that tells us that masturbation is anything other than a normal, healthy, very positive act that actually has many health benefits. As it turns out, masturbation is super healthy. It's good for your immune system. It helps regulate your sleep. It's good for your heart pressure. Like, you know, the, the physiological benefits of touch and arousal and orgasm um, can be reaped with masturbation. And then masturbation is an act of self-love and caring for yourself and nourishing yourself and feeding yourself, like all of these things that we talk about. And that's where I was going to start this episode with the idea that masturbation is good and healthy and how do we do it more creatively and what kind of things can we add pleasure to our masturbation? That's the conversation I thought we were going to have, but we can't talk about that without the rest of this. Because the fact that people question this at all or are ashamed about masturbating, or a lot of us masturbate kind of like a dirty chore, you know, it's like you have to brush your teeth and then like jerk off 
to kind of like purge yourself. And that goes back to onanism. That goes back to this idea of self-pollution, that it's like this dirty thing our body needs that we have to relieve ourselves and then maybe feel bad afterwards. I think that's how most people are masturbating in one way or another. Or the people who have fully embraced masturbation and see it as an act of self-love and have a drawer full of sex toys and can like celebrate their body and have this big, beautiful orgasm with themselves. That is also situated within this history because the, that idea is so new and is a reaction to this history, right? And so like we're all influenced by this in one way or the other. And to situate ourselves in that history, I think, is to give ourselves a great gift of understanding sexuality as cultural, that these belief systems and values are very much passed down generation to generation, and therefore are changeable. And as we change our own internal belief systems about something like masturbation, as we say, oh, I could take 10 more minutes and actually enjoy this process and give myself some pleasure and actually feel good about that instead of feeling a little bit guilty about it, like that decision to feel positive about an act like masturbation or to dare to masturbate in front of your partner and reveal that part of yourself and be less ashamed of it, those little decisions we all make are actually changing the culture for future generations. And the more that we can talk to our friends and just like unabashedly claim masturbation as a positive, healthy thing, that is participating in the undoing of 2,000 plus years of history. And what are the implications of that? Just as Augustine, like there were major 2,000 year implications of him declaring sex as a war against the spirit and sex as sin that the devil has come to tempt us with. Major implications from that philosopher and his writings. What are the implications of this act that we can all do now at this moment in culture. And there, that's where I really like to kind of light up our imagination of like, what is the sex culture we're creating? And then what does that create on the globe? Like if this sexual control has been part of the past few thousand years, and we know what those few thousand years have looked like of imperialism and the concentration of resources in the hands of few and war and famine, and you know, it's like we know what the history has given us. What future can we possibly create on the foundation of new sexual values? Is this interesting to anyone else? I'm not sure. I hope so. <laughs> I got really excited about telling this story. Um, I think the presencing, <laughs> the, the pain and the history and the, um, yeah, the control, the violence that has been done to human bodies around this act is valuable and important to understand one's own judgment, guilt, pain, discomfort. Uh, when we're alone in our own home, no one is around. Well, and the major trick of it, right, is we've been taught that sex is bad and dirty and you feel bad and dirty about sex because sex is bad and dirty. Uh-huh. When really it's you feel bad about sex because we've told you that it's dirty. Therefore, when you feel the urge to it, you are bad. Right. So it personalizes this morality. Um, 
Yeah. And when people say like, well, sex is social control, like how does that, you know, guns control people, sex, you know, it's like if masturbation and sexuality didn't matter, why would all of this work have been gone into controlling it? What stakes did the Roman Empire have in controlling the sexuality of their new empire? If sexuality didn't matter for social control, they would have ignored it and let people fuck how they want to fuck and had their sex culture as it has existed for thousands of years. And they wouldn't have they wouldn't have needed to enforce a new sex culture to maintain control of their empire. And it was a primary tool. So we need to look at that and take it seriously and think now, how is sexuality being used as social control now? What is it taking us away from? What power is it denying us to repress our sexuality? And therefore, what power can be accessed accessed if we heal our relationship to sexuality and admit it as a source of power, admit it as a source of personal and political strength? What happens then, right? So it's like, it's almost like we've called them out on their own game. After 2,000 years of suffering, we have enough dialogue now. And enough data. (laughs) And enough science that shows us the health benefits of sexuality, that shows us the social benefits of healthy, healthy sexuality and how it weaves us together. I mean... It starts getting kind of goosebumpy for me because I feel like this is a power that is rising and we're starting to see the implications of it and we're starting to create a new sex culture. And I think it has everything to do with the political moment we're in and the end of the age of empires or something. (laughs) Um, I think we should leave it there. Maybe we will circle back to how to make masturbation more fun. I would love to hear what you guys think of this episode. It was a little bit of something different. Um, But I love this stuff. I will create lots of links on the show notes page if you want to geek out with me on the anti-masturbation devices, on the sex laws of the past. Um, I can't get enough of this. I would love to know what you think. And we will be back with you next week with a new episode. We have some very exciting interviews coming up. Um, and on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash pleasure mechanics, uh, our Patreon community is voting on our next podcast episodes. And so we will be bringing those to you, including things on performance anxiety and the erotic ego and power play amongst spouses or other equitable partners. How do you play with power in a marriage? Um, These are the topics that are being voted up at Patreon. We have pleasure packages going out to our $25 level patrons and more to come so we are surging forth into may masturbating every day (laughs) made up that song (laughs) and i realized i didn't tell the story about the masturbatathons that i have attended Mm. maybe i will tell that story and we'll put it up as a bonus episode in the patron oh oh that's fun all right so we are going to end this episode here if you want to hear about the masturbatathons and my adventures at the Masturbatathons in San Francisco in the early 2000s, come on over to patreon.com slash pleasure mechanics. Pledge as little as a buck a month, and I'll tell you my stories. <laughs> and how that led me up directly to meeting Charlotte. I was reflecting on this the other mm. day. My last Masturbatathon was just before I met you. Wow. And it was a very challenging night. Mm. But the other <laughs> ones were fabulous. How many did you go to? I think four. 
I was mm. trying to think mm. three or four. And what about what about the and other wild group turkey masturbation? <laughs> okay, I will tell you <laughs> my masturbation. turkey trance and masturbatathon <laughs> stories, and maybe I will pull a masturbation story out of you, like the time you saw. God in the woods. Mm. We will talk. All right. <laughs> Patreon.com slash pleasure mechanics for the bonuses. This is unplanned. <laughs> this is fun. And we will be back at you next week with another episode. Thanks again for being here, for being part of our community, and for sticking with me through 3,000 years of masturbation history. Whew. All right. I'm Chris. I'm Charlotte. We are the Pleasure Mechanics. Wishing you a lifetime of pleasure. And the transformation of global sex culture for the freedom of all. Through your masturbation. And beyond. with you. <laughs> may there be peace on earth and may it begin with you. Oh.